Hello, hello, hello. You're listening to Rational Radio here on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. Uh, my name's Amelia, and joining me in the booth today are Valerie and Jenny. Hi. Hi. I hope everybody's <laughs> enjoying the sunny day. Yeah, yes. I know. The weather beautiful. is so beautiful right now. Like, please get outside if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially to see all the cherry blossoms and everything. Like, have oh, you guys just seen It's campus? been so pretty. It's I've been, been so pretty to see all the flowers blooming, for sure. It's like a relief. It's like, thank goodness winter is over and spring is here and the flowers are out and they're falling all over and everywhere. It's amazing. Yeah. I've just been so much happier walking around campus and like so much less miserable. Like I'm so stressed out right now just because we're moving towards final season, Mm -hmm. but it feels like everything's finally worth it. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's very hard to stay in class when everybody is always outside on the beach. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that all of our weeks are off to a good start, and I hope that you guys are having a good start to your weeks, too. But you know the deal. We say that we're all news all the time here, so we're just going to kind of dive right in. Um, So our first story today is coming to you from BBC, and it's about how Randolph Owls, who is the um, former now U.S. uh, Secret Service director, is set to leave his position as of this afternoon. So U.S. Secret Service director Randolph Owls is leaving his position, making him one of several Department of Homeland Security officials to be thrown out of office in the past few days. Um, his departure comes only a day after Department of Homeland Security's Sec- Secretary Kirsten Nielsen resigned due to pressure over the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Alice reports directly to Nielsen. So Trump tapped the head of Customs and Border Protection, uh, Kevin McAleenan, to be the acting secretary of the entire department. However, under U.S. law, the department's undersecretary, who's currently uh, Claire Grady, should have been the one to take over for Nielsen as the senior Senate confirmed official. Um, Due to Al's departure, Grady's position is now under review as officials consider the best way to allow for a smooth transition for McAleenan. Um, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters that the Secret Service member James Murray would take over as director of the Secret Service in May. Um, CVS reports that Owls was asked to leave around 10 days ago, which was right around the time of that incident on March 30th when a woman from China snuck into Trump's resort at Mar-a-Lago with malware device and she like circumvented a bunch of um, homeland of uh, Secret Service agents and the security at Mar-a-Lago and it was a very big crisis. I think we talked about it on here. Um, yeah, you can check some of our old podcasts about it. Someone talked about it. And so um, Alice himself was appointed by Trump in April 2017. He is a former two-star Marine Corps general and he was the first Secret Service director in at least a century to have not come from within the agency so this is kind of like a very big development it's only happened recently and my mind kind of immediately jumped to a conspiracy theory just like knowing trump and i wanted i was really questioning his motives because it sounds like he's entirely trying to overthrow uh, the department of homeland security right now and so i was wondering if you guys were thinking like I guess my mind first jumped to, like, maybe it's a way for him to try to pass new immigration policies by just, like, overthrowing the department. Interesting. (laughs) So I was wondering, I guess, like, what your guys' take on this is, and why do you think that Trump is trying to make all of these sudden changes now? I was just going to say that. My question is, why now? He's on his way out for this term. Mm -hmm. So if he doesn't get reelected, why is he doing all this really drastic um, administration changes now at this point in the 
you know, administration. Mm -hmm. I think that also he is just trying to make reform in some way to be successful. So I guess part of that is like trying to get people in the same mindset of as him. As you said, maybe he's trying to replace Homeland Security officials with security officials who will be more, um, you know, just see the border crisis as a crisis as he does or has as he thinks there is. And I think that also, you know, it's he's just trying to keep the border issue relevant. Yeah, that's what it seems like, because I guess, too, I'm sure that you guys have if you listen to the show at all, I know that you've heard me talk about this over and over again, but I feel like it's another way for him to try to deliver on campaign promises. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because he's seeing now that everything is falling through, everything that he's been like banking and relying on to push him through and like create a legacy for himself is just like fallen like sand between his fingers. And so now I feel like this is his last ditch effort in the sense that like if Congress isn't going to pass it, if his current administration isn't going to pass it, then let's overhaul the administration and find a new way. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think his entire presidency, not only because I don't like him, but but that aside I think his entire presidency has been a flop and I think he knows that Mm -hmm. and I think he's just now trying to scramble to you know do some latch like you said Amelia last ditch effort to kind of say what can we get done if anything because he's on his way out so again why now yeah yeah and I think that also it's I mean just like he there have been so many people resigning I feel like more than ever before in our like or in at least in the past eight years with the Obama administration more um like officials were resigning and like you know new ones coming in there was just so much of that that it's um it's I don't know it just seems like of course he's going to do this just switch around the Department of Homeland Security I agree like none of this surprises me at this point you know I'm confused I don't understand it but I'm not surprised Mm -hmm. like I I fully expect this crazy irrational behavior from him and I think we're gonna see more more um you know firings in the next coming months because he is trying to do a last-ditch effort Yeah, that was kind of like one of the other big questions I had as I was reading through this article. Like, do you think that this is going to open up some type of revolving door in the Department of Homeland Security now? Do you think that any of these positions, like any of these picks are going to be permanent? Like, are they going to see it through to the end of the administration? That's a very good question. Mm -hmm. And I think only time will tell. Yeah. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see who makes it to the end because clearly not many people are left from the beginning. Like this on this whole administration just feels like a Hunger Games at this point. Oh my You're gosh. so right. Like, <laughs> you know it's, it's, I mean? it's just been like a Game of Thrones, you know. Yeah. And it's like I cycle. Like I really can only think of a handful of people who are still there from the start and mm-hmm. like those people also disappoint me like one of them is Betsy DeVos. Well, and they're also half the people that are still there are his family. Yeah, that's you know, very true. So Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, um, Ivanka Trump, his daughter, um, Melania Trump, somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think the people that are closest to him and that will stay also can't leave because they're family. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's also other it's like problems with that that we're not gonna, you know, get into. You know, spoil system. <laughs> yeah, and um, like he also said that he recently withdrew. I mean, it says in the article he wrote. Re- 
withdrew his nomination of Ron Viatelo for to lead immigration and customs enforcement. Yeah. Saying that he wanted to go, quote, in a tougher direction. So mm. I'm just thinking, what does he want to do in the short time that he has left, or at least in this term, to, you know, go tougher on immigration? Statistics say that, like, illegal immigration is going down. I don't understand why he this is such a big point of focus for him i i don't understand why he doesn't focus on other things that could be more progressive for the united states yeah and i also don't one thing that like on that note too in terms of just like the pressure on it is i don't understand what made nielsen crack now of all times because i remember reading that like six months into her taking the position she was already thinking and like had already drafted a letter of resignation because she was sick of the pressure on her to go tougher on the border Mm -hmm. because she didn't agree with it so i wonder like do you guys think Especially, too, because it feels like she's at the end of riding out this big wave with the wall push. And it's like I can understand her wanting to res- to resign during the beginning of the whole push, like back in December and January. Right. But why now when it's over? I think that maybe it's not over and Trump is going to pull like a huge, a second huge tantrum. I don't know what he could possibly do within the laws of the United States to try to like get the border wall built again but I feel like she is avoiding something or maybe he told her maybe she felt pressured to go forward with doing going for like really strict border policies that she wasn't comfortable with yeah I think it's interesting that she also kind of like she like Amelia you mentioned she had a resignation letter written from the start yeah. So why would you even subject yourself to the horrors of being within the Trump administration? You know, mm-hmm. why didn't she step back while she still had her reputation intact? You know, but I I don't know. I think it's I, I I'm curious to see who else is going to going to be on the chopping block yeah. in the future, because mm-hmm. I'm sure this is not the only person that's going to be cut. No, definitely before not. the end of, you know, Trump's term. Not at all. And it's sad, too, because we were in, like, a little bit of a lull, too, and I thought mm-hmm. that things had finally settled. No, you but, can, can never <laughs> you get know, too comfortable in this administration. Trump always has a way of keeping us on our toes. Oh, know? yes. But on that note, speaking of the border, this story, uh, this next story that we're going to is a little bit sadder, but it's down in um, some of the border towns in Louisiana. So there have actually been some fires within the past 10 days that have destroyed three black churches in Louisiana. Um, This is coming to you from NPR. Uh, Federal authorities have joined the investigation into a string of fires that engulfed three historically black churches in southern Louisiana in the span of just 10 days. Uh, The fires began on March 26th in Louisiana in Louisiana's St. Landry Parish, which is a rural community north of Lafayette. Um, Officials have not yet determined the cause of the fires, but have said that they are unable to rule out the possibility of arson or that the three incidents were all related. Um, State Fire Marshal uh, State Fire Marshal H. Browning said on Thursday that, quote, there is clearly something happening in this community. That is why it is imperative that the citizens of this community be part of our effort to figure out what it is. Um, The fires caused extensive damage to the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church and the Greater Union Baptist Church in the city of Opelousas and the St. Mary Baptist Church in Port Barr. Uh, No deaths or injuries have been reported in either of the fires. 
Um, separately, officials say a fourth fire was, quote, intentionally set on March 31st at the Vivian United Pentecostal Church, um, which is a predominantly white church roughly three hours north in, uh, Can- uh, in Cato Parish. Um, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is now investigating the fires, as is the FBI. So far, officials have not yet connected the four fires, identified a suspect, or determined a motive. The narrow window in which the fires took place has raised the fear that racist motivations may be at play. So, I was wondering what you guys thought of that last little bit um, coming from the rundown right now. Of like, Do you think that this is racially motivated, these fires? I think that it would be incredibly naive to say no mm-hmm. you know um based on the historical background of these churches and the location and things we know about previous you know racially motivated crimes i think it would be naive to say that race does not play a part mm-hmm. i mean it might not it might just be you know somehow coincidental but i think until proven wrong we have to assume that racial um, motivation may be a factor and there could be other factors too you know mm-hmm. you you never know because arson is arson is very uh subjective yeah absolutely yeah i mean definitely and especially are the are these churches close together um i think two of them are and then the third is like kind of farther away yeah like why would you know if this were not a racially motivated fire i think that the whole block would catch fire it would not be three Mm. specific churches Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. also you know as you said before jenny there has been a history of like attacks on black churches which is of course completely awful because who are in churches like children and priests um and i think that it is a good possibility because they didn't attack white churches or like they Catholic only, churches. It's like it's only that one potential, that one potential white church that could like not fourth. be linked to yeah, the other like three. We don't know. So that oh, one could just was, be a completely okay. separate. That, that one was. They thought that the fourth fire was intentionally set, but that, they just don't know anything. Like the the investigation is so new at this point. That could be just an isolated incident, but yeah, we mm-hmm. don't know yet at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on mm-hmm. as it keeps developing because especially too like one of these churches is about to like sell the congregation is like about to celebrate 130 years or something mm-hmm. insane like that. So I definitely think it's important to keep an eye and watch these uh, this particular story develop as it, uh, new evidence keeps surfacing. But on that note, we do need to head to our first commercial break. So uh, stick around, guys. We got some new stories coming at you when we return. And we are back. You're listening to WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. This is Rational Radio, and I'm your host, Amelia, with Valerie and Jenny. Um, So before the break, we were talking a little bit about the U.S. Secret Service director leaving his position, and then we were talking about some fires that destroyed three black churches in Louisiana. But we're going to change gears a little bit, and Valerie has a fun little story for us. Well, not so fun, but it's a story. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to head over to the Middle East, and we're... um So this headline is Trump designates Iran's Revolutionary Guard a foreign terrorist group. And the sources here are from The New York Times and CNN. So on Monday, President Trump designated an arm of the Iranian military, which is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, 
the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps are a group of trained Arab Shi- Shiite militias that carry out operations across the Middle East and play a large role and do a lot of business with Iran. This raises a risk. So the designation of them as a terrorist group raises a risk of retaliation against America from this troop. And the designation of the IRGC imposes travel and economic sanctions on the Guard Corps. And along with those economic sanctions and travel sanctions imposed on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they're also imposed on organizations, companies, individuals, and and officials in Iraq that have ties to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So this is a lot of people that are getting the sanctions on them, and um, it will take effect on April 15th. According to American officials, this designation covers 11 million people because 11 million of people are in the like like the Islamic Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and then all of the people affiliated with that. So that's a really broad range of people that the United States is going to put economic and travel sanctions on. A statement about the designation specifically mentioned the Quds Force, which is a special unit of the Revolutionary Guard. The Trump administration said um, officials said that this designation is a response to Iran destabilizing the Middle East, supporting the regime in Syria, and their assassination plots in the United States and Europe. Donald Trump said, this action will significantly, this is a quote from Trump, this action will significantly expand the scope and scale of our maximum pressure on the Iranian regime. It makes crystal clear risks of conducting business with or providing to or providing support to the IRGC. This unit is led by Qasem Soleimani and top Pentagon and CIA officials oppose the designation since they fear that Iranian officials will use it as justification for violent operations against the special operations units overseas, which is run by the CIA. So this is raising some fear in the people who are overseas. Iraqi officials are also in opposition because a lot of, well, Iraqi officials have ties to the IRGC. So they're going to, all of these sanctions are also going to be imposed on them. An interagency lawyer group said that the designation was too broad for a, of a group. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton pushed forward for it anyway. On Saturday, a member of the Iranian parliament on Twitter said that Iran Iran planned, planned on designating the U.S. military as a terrorist organization. The, t- the designation can motivate the Iranian government to try to limit the actions of the 5,000 American troops in Iraq. So there's a lot of concerns about this from, you know, people in the CIA. Um, you know, people seem to be kind of wary of this designation. What do you guys think about it? Um, I'm definitely concerned about it because I like I agree with a lot of the backlash and criticism about it. And it's like, the first thing I thought of was kind of like 
almost along the lines of Harry Potter in the sense of just like giving like power to a name like that like like when you put a name as something to be feared then you automatically give something power Mm -hmm. just like the whole like Voldemort thing Mm. and so I think that we're just giving them so much power by like regarding them as something to be feared whereas if we just addressed it but like in a more like in not such a public way then like take attention away from them because attention is how like terrorist groups gain power they gain it through recognition like that and from media attention so we're like fueling their ability to do horrible things i agree and i think a lot of like everyday americans when they see the word terrorist group in the news they immediately panic Mm -hmm. without you know especially if they don't even read the article Mm -hmm. and I think that, like Amelia said, I think this just causes just widespread fear and panic because, oh no, there's another terrorist organization Yeah. because we already have ISIS, we already have, you know, some of these other things, and this is just another one to worry about. And I think Trump is also kind of emboldening um, the reach of the IRGC, you know, because mm-hmm. people in America that have no idea that this thing exists might get, you know, propagandized and inspired to become Mm -hmm. a part of this group so you never know where it could lead and i think that publicly declaring that the irgc was was a um terrorist group just gives it more of a like a a platform Mm -hmm. like you said amelia basically like you know he who shall not be named with voldemort and I'm nervous, too, about how it's going to affect Iranians in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because with how xenophobic this administration yes. is and supporters of this administration are, I'm worried that now it's going to, like, people who are Iranian in the United States are now going to be, like, irrevocably associated with terrorism, which is absolutely not true and completely unfair. Yeah, and also this puts Iraq kind of in a hard position because Iraq is an ally to the uni- to America, So Mm -hmm. it is, and then they are also, they have ties with, like, this Iranian group. So it is kind of hard for them. Um, You know, like, what are they supposed to do now? There are all these economic sanctions on this group. And also, this, um, like, the IRGC, this is not a terror, I mean, now it's designated as a terrorist group, but it is a part of the Iranian government and a part of it's an arm of the Iranian military. So it's, you know, this is like very unusual for um, the United States government to recognize a part of another government as um, as a terrorist group. I think it is the article. Yeah, this is the first time that the United States has said that a part of another nation's government is a terrorist group. I think you bring up a really good point, and I wonder, you know, what Trump would consider a terrorist group, because mm-hmm. if this is if the IRGC is a part of a sovereign government, then it, it they have you know the Trump administration and the United States has no real control over what the IRGC does, because the IRGC is run by the Iranian government. Mm-hmm. So unless the Iranian government is like directly supporting, you know, a state-sponsored terrorism, I don't know if Trump had the, you know, authority, authority to declare this. Especially, if, I feel like it's kind of out of nowhere, you know, because yeah. I feel like everyday Americans, at least like me and you guys, we don't really 
I never heard of the IRGC until this article. So I think it just brings to light like very obscure ways that Trump is trying to assert dominance and it's kind of confusing and kind of weird and really doesn't make sense that kind of like links back to the whole conspiracy theory we were talking about last talk break that like he's trying to unite people based on fear Mm -hmm. and like use this almost as a fear tactic and so make americans rally behind him by giving them a common thing to be afraid of well and he's done that his entire yeah he's done that his entire presidency and um that tactic is not gonna go away anytime soon because he's put it on the forefront mm-hmm. and he's he's set the precedent that it's okay for a president to embolden fear yeah mm-hmm. so yeah i it it blows my mind that he would think that you know and i think there's di- there's a difference between talking behind closed doors and discussing you know what the irgc could mean for the united states and like u.s security but it's a whole other thing to announce it to the general public because the general public, you know, because we're not really the general public. We follow the news and essentially we're journalists in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, people who just follow the news through Twitter or Facebook who watch the daily news at night at 6 p.m. that don't really follow it consistently, they're going to be either very afraid because they see the word terrorist group in, you know, all caps, mm-hmm. or they're going to be very confused and just go with whatever they see and not try to look into it further and kind of dissect it the way we are. Right. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, and also, um, you know, this is really hard for anybody who has ties to the IRGC because any with these economic and travel sanctions, it means that any group or individual that does business with the IRGC could face criminal prosecution for providing material to this um terrorist organization and that you know also as i mentioned before they do a lot of business so it it is hard for all of these people all of a sudden they're going to be um facing like this moral dilemma i agree and i wonder what the consequences are for um iranian americans you know if they have any ties to the irgc IRGC, whether that be family members or friends mm-hmm. or acquaintances, I wonder if they're going to be, you know, hounded for being somehow a part of this, even though they're, you know, half a world away. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious to see what the consequences are for people living in America that might have some obscure relation to the IRGC. Yeah. I think it'll definitely be interesting to watch this one develop because you know this isn't going to be the last time that we hear about this. Oh, I'm sure this will be in the news yeah, quite often, probably up until his presidency is over, mm-hmm. if he doesn't <laughs> get another term. That's, yeah. that's another debate. Mm-hmm. I think it also just kind of goes with the whole war on terror that has been around since the Bush administration mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the United States trying to seize control of whatever like inch of terror they think that could possibly gain power over any spot in the middle east and i think it's definitely trump trying to you know control things in syria as well i think that speaks to the larger issue of the war on terror because we always think of the war on terror being just terrorists and like those propaganda videos of isis you know Mm -hmm. harming all these civilians but i don't think we really think about how the war on terror affects 
people that live in America that are from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I know me personally, like I have some neighbors that are um, Pakistani, and I'm, they've, my mom has talked to them a few times just about you know everything that's been going on in like inter- the international community, and you don't really get to hear the side of the people who had to flee their countries because the United States has bombed their yeah. countries, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think it'd be really interesting to see how, you know, the effects play into people coming to America that have been affected by U.S. policy. And I think it'll also be interesting to see how it affects our approach with other terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, how is it going to affect us with ISIS? And, like, is it going to change anything? Are they going to be completely independent? Are we going to take the same approach? Like, or is it going to cause for any reason that IRGC and ISIS to, like, combine forces in any yeah. way? Like, by some long shot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really hope not. <laughs> if, Trump, if Trump is right and the IRGC is a legitimate terrorist organization, despite being a part of a sovereign um, government... I think it'd be really interesting to see how the the scale tips between how the, Amer- the United States deals with ISIS versus, you know, other terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. Because th- the terrorist groups that exist in the world aren't just ISIS. You know, there's Boko Haram mm-hmm. in Africa. There's some other um, terrorist organizations that it it's not just, you know, the Islamic State. And I think that it's going to be very interesting to see how these other groups play into how you know, the U.S. deals with the IRGC. Yeah, we'll have to wait till April 15th to see what the news is next. You guys, everybody will have to listen in. Yeah, and on that note, we do need to head to our second break, but stick around because when we come back, we're going to be talking about some developments with antibiotics in Africa, and it should be pretty interesting. So stay tuned, guys. It's half past the top of the hour, and here's your WHIP Sports Update. Hey, sports fans, I'm Taylor Snyder, and this is your sports update for April 8, 2019. The Florida Panthers announced that they have signed former Blackhawks coach Joel Quinville to be the team's next head coach. The news comes just one day after the team fired Bob Bougenier, who had coached the club for only two seasons. According to ESPN, the deal with Florida could pay Quinville more than $6 million annually with bonuses, making him one of the highest-paid coaches in the NHL. On to the court, the Golden State Warriors clinched the number one seed throughout the Western Conference playoffs with a 131-104 blowout win over the LA Clippers on Sunday night. The Warriors, who have been battling with the Denver Nuggets for the top spot over the past few months, were led by Stephen Curry, who scored 27 points, grabbed six rebounds, and dished out four assists, while Kevin Durant added 16 points and seven assists. And finally, on to the madness, a new champion will be crowned tonight. The Virginia Cavaliers and Texas Tech Red Raiders will compete for the national championship tonight in Minneapolis. Both teams are making their first national title appearances in school history. Today's weather on Broad Street will be sunny with a high of 80 and a low of 60, so make sure to get outside today, Owls. With reports at half past each hour, this has been Taylor Snyder reporting for WHIP Radio, Philly's number one college radio station. And we are back. Uh, you're listening to Rational Radio here on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. Um, I am Amelia, and with me are Jenny and Valerie. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about how Trump had designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a foreign terrorist group. But we're going to shift gears now 
and um, we're going to talk a little bit more um, about some stories that are developing in Africa regarding antibiotics. So this is coming to you from the New York Times. It's a really great feature article by them. Like if you have a good like 20 minutes to kill, like I would definitely recommend reading it. But in a poor Kenyan community, cheap antibiotics fuel deadly drug-resistant infections. So in developing countries, antibiotics are being used to treat patients regardless of if they meet prescription requirements, causing them to become increasingly ineffective as treatment options since germs are adapting to circumvent the effects of medications. Um, Antibiotics themselves are often regarded as miracle drugs with the ability to save millions of lives. Um, They become uh, finally become accessible to developing countries primarily due to the mass production of generics in China and India. Uh, So it now only costs a few dollars in developing countries to purchase antibiotics that can be used against a broad range of infections. Um, this particular feature by the Times focuses on the community of Kibera, which is right outside Kenya's capital of Nairobi. Um, the Times found that residents in this area are major users of antibiotics. Um, one study even found that 90% of households in Kibera had used antibiotics in the past year in comparison to only about 17% for the typical American family. Because so many people have begun using antibiotics here, germs are beginning to outsmart the medicine by developing mutations to increase their resistance to antibiotics. Additionally, these mutant bacteria commingle with other pathogens in sewage canals, hospital wards, and livestock pens. Um, They can share their genetic resistance traits, making other microorganisms impervious to antibiotics. So not only are the the bacteria of the diseases themselves becoming resistant, it's all these bacteria that they interact with leading to even more disease becoming resistant to antibiotics. Um, These pathogens cause about 700,000 deaths per year globally, and in Kibera, it particularly affects young children whose immune systems have yet to fully develop to combat these diseases. Um, Although antibiotic resistance is a global threat, it's previously mainly been uh, considered a problem in rich countries since comfortably insured patients rush to the doctor to demand prescriptions at the slightest hint of a cough or cold. So like I always think about it as just like the helicopter moms like rushing their kids as soon as they sneeze (laughs) literally once when it's literally just like allergies or something. So um, as a result of this, it's often ignored that urban poverty is a huge and largely unappreciated driver of resistance. Um, the, thus, the rise of resistant microbes is hitting developing countries particularly hard since this is where there's uh, really crowded living conditions, relaxed antibiotic use standards, and a lack of accessible and affordable medical care. In Kibera, in some cases, vendors sell counterfeit antibiotics that contain none of the active ingredient or so little of it that they actually accelerate resistance. Even when the drugs are authentic, many poor Kenyans try to save money by buying just a few tablets instead of the full course, and so it's not enough to actually get rid of the infection, but it is enough to allow the bacteria to adjust to the medicine and then mutate to gain resistance. Um... In addition to this, sanitation in these developing countries, particularly in the community of Kibera, are also really to blame here. So uh, epidemiologists and public health experts who have studied Kibera say that there is a direct correlation between the community's poor hygiene and the infection that's um, affect nearly every household there. So harmful bacteria and feces that is allowed to seep into the surrounding soil can survive for months. And in densely populated settlements like Kibera that are like completely reliant on dirt paths that easily find their way into food and water, often um, by residents who unknowingly carry the pathogens into their homes on shoes or unwashed hands. 
So Kenya has officially tried to embrace efforts to stem resistance by reducing the overuse of antibiotics, promoting vaccinations, and encouraging better hygiene among hospital workers. Um, over the past two years, many of the country's medical institutions have established stewardship uh, commu- uh, committees. So this includes um, implementing things like well-mounted hand sanitizers, so that way um, people can try to fight germs. But the government has made little headway in enforcing laws that require prescriptions for buying antibiotics, nor has it done much to stem the flow of uh, bootleg drugs that spill across the nation's 400-mile border with Somalia. So... Kenyan doctors, as a result, don't think that the government will be able to solve the problem, with um, a quote from Dr. John Audiano saying, quote, To be honest, based on the past, I don't have faith that we will be able to solve this. I don't think our government thinks it's a big problem. So, I, like, I don't know, this story, like, hit me very hard because it was really interesting to see how ignored of a problem it is yet how big the statistics are with it like 700,000 deaths a year is monumental so I was wondering who do you guys think is responsible here like do you think it's the population for relying on antibiotics and or is it doctors for giving it to them without prescriptions the government or do you think it's even like us as developed countries who have given them these antibiotics? Like, is it our fault that we haven't given it to them alongside regulations of how to implement them? I think there's a lot of different peop- um, factors to blame. I think first off, the government is to blame because the government is responsible for its people. If you have 700,000 people dying a year, that is insane. Like, I, I can't even fathom. Because, like, that's globally, too. Like, keep that in mind that this is, like, every country in the world. But still, like, the numbers in Kenya are huge. Um, yeah, in Kenya if, itself if you, are huge. If you, if you like, ratio that yeah, to, like, like, I the think Kenyan it's like, population. I think it's, like, 45,000 kids die there a year of salmonella or something mm-hmm. insane. Like, yeah. So don't I think, quote me on that, though. Yeah. That's just, like, off the top of my head. I, think, I might be wrong. <laughs> I think the government at first is to blame because they're responsible for their population. If you can't keep your own population alive then what are you doing as a country? That is like the most basic level of thing that a country needs to do is keep your population alive. Mm-hmm. But then um, below that, I think the doctors are also to blame. Um, and I think also that us as developed countries are to blame because number one, a lot of the doctors there don't have the training and the knowledge mm-hmm. and the you know the experience that American or developed country doctors do. Mm-hmm. I think if anyone's the victim, it's just the general population. Yeah. Because the general population, and not even using this word as like a demeaning way, but the population is ignorant towards, you know, all of these antibiotics. Like they're, they're the knowledge that they know is from what the government and the doctors tell them. Mm-hmm. And to an mean? extent, we're just as ignorant. Exactly. We're just lucky enough to have better standards regarding the use of exactly. it from those higher up positions. Exactly. And I think the problem of the sanitation being so poor just adds another factor. So I think there's yeah. so many things happening at once that make it a recipe for just disaster. Yeah. And I think I think I agree with Jenny. It's the responsibility of the government, but it's also, um, you know, the responsibility of like I know that a lot of organizations and like medical institutions like medical institutions there should recommend regulations and rules to you know stop the common usage of these antibiotics because I mean it does help people when like you have the right issue but otherwise you know you don't need 
to use antibiotics for every single thing. And I think that um, what should happen is that they should, like, stop prescribing antibiotics for a little bit and, like, enforce laws. And I think that the government really has to get on this. Um, and it needs to, like, do a lot to prevent bootleg drugs from being sold. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, yeah, I think that I think that this is like bootleg drugs can be so dangerous. And that is like a huge issue with this is that, as um, you said in the rundown, Amelia, like they're not always real antibiotics and they actually make the infections worse or they're, they'll make the resistance stronger. And I think that that's why they need to crack down on bootleg drugs. I agree, and I think this this kind of connects to the story we talked about last week with the, you know, bootleg cocaine. It's yeah. the same idea. You have no idea what is in these bootleg drugs at all. Mm-hmm. It could be a mix of 30 different things that could do so much more harm than good. So you have no idea. And I think it's a shame that people in um, Kibera are, you know, falling for it because they, like, a lot of these people, um, you know, don't have the the means to afford these um miracle drugs which i mean at this point they're not even miracle drugs anymore yeah because because like we saw this mm-hmm. in the united states um you know previously in history your body just develops resistance resistance yeah like it habituates yeah so I, I think that it's gonna take a lot for the kenyan government to really develop um like a policy that treats its citizens and keeps them alive yeah and like i think that the policy regarding it currently is a little too tunnel vision on the antibiotics itself Mm -hmm. because they're not acknowledging anything with the sanitation issues or education and i think that if you combine sanitation measures that improve infrastructure within the community and then you also couple it with education to inform the population about what exactly they're buying how much of it they should be buying what it's used for how it could treat them like i think if you inform the population and then also clean up the community, then you're creating an environment where antibiotics will be helpful. But you can't just focus on the drugs themselves. Yeah. I agree. I think there's so many things that are just wrong with this. You know, the sanitation, the lack of knowledge, the lack of care by the government, and mm-hmm. the lack of infrastructure really just creating a recipe for huge swaths of, of people in Kenya and in the town of Kaibira. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, I think it's just creating a recipe for not a good situation, and I, I, I really hope that you know either us as developed countries can can share some of our knowledge with them, because you don't we don't like to see this type of news, you know, and I think it's a shame that the developed countries kind of um, just let this slide under the radar because it's a less developed country and in the eyes of the United States the only things that the United States cares about are you know is money and things like that should it be our responsibility to help them yeah I agree I think that the United States maybe what we should do or other like better developed countries should hold like symposiums and like a regulation of recommended standards which countries should have or you know an organization not like a white savior complex organization but an organization that will teach them how to build their own standards 
and like um you know take care like have the doctors correctly prescribe the antibiotics should come in and help Kiberia because I know that there's Kiberia because I know that there's like a lot of organizations which just help country underdeveloped countries and then leave and then leave underdeveloped countries with no resources or only temporary temporary resources but I think that um you know like organizations like Doctors Without Borders should try to empower them and give them the financial funding to have Mm -hmm. good resources and medical resources and to make these standards and to enforce some sort of drug standards and medical standards I agree I think I think that the implementation and creation of you know a standard is what really can set the tone for you know bettering the situation um and I think also like maybe giving people the opportunity to to learn more mm-hmm. about, you know, health and their bodies and these um, antibiotics and these infections and things like that. I think giving people the tools to help themselves can can really do a world of good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. But on that note, we do need to get ready to head out for the night. So as always, thank you guys so much for listening to Rational Radio here on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. Um, If you're interested in hearing anything more from us, make sure that you check out Rational on Wednesday and Friday, same time, same place. And if if you're interested in hearing anything on Tuesday and Thursday from the news department, make sure that you check out our sister show, The District. Uh, They focus a little more on local politics, and they have some really fun stories. So I would definitely say check it out. You can hear Jenny with them tomorrow night at 7. Mm -hmm. Um, And other than that, make sure that you check out The Crackdown, which is WHIP's weekly news video where we kind of give you the biggest headlines from the week and explain it and why it matters to you. And yeah, um, interested in any more news, make sure that you check out our podcast too. All of them are on Spotify. Um, Yeah, that's it for us. So hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you next time.